Okay, so the readings, uh, Leviticus chapter 9. Take a minute to find it. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both, without, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar he burnt the fat, the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burnt outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burnt them on the altar. He washed the internal organs and the legs and burnt them on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering as he did the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a fellowship offering for the people. His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. But the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layer of fat, the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, these he laid on the breast. And then Aaron burnt the fat on the altar. Aaron waved the breast and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell down. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please do um, be seated and turn to um, Leviticus chapter 9. Um, that was an uplifting time. The Lord um, drew near to us. Maybe you've heard that comment after a service of a refreshment. Um, or the worship was awesome um, today. Um, what about that? Or, or God was moving um, powerfully amongst us. Let me ask you this question for you to consider. Uh, what is the most memorable and engaging worship experience of your life? What is the most memorable and engaging worship experience of your um, life? I remember um, Isaiah 53 being preached, followed by the hymn, Yes, Finished, the Messiah Dies. And the Lord flooded my heart with an overwhelming gratitude that I, it's hard to um, explain. But maybe you've had that kind of experience. On another occasion, I was um, sitting in the pew at the church I grew up in, hearing the words of the Lord's Supper. And I put my head uh, in my hands, convicted that unforgiveness had no place in my heart if I was going to take the bread and wine into my hands as if, the Holy Spirit was pressing his hands upon me. And I'll never forget the time I preached on the coming judgment from 1 Peter at a Christian summer camp. Silence fell on the room. I wept, leaders wept, members were weeping. There was such a weightiness upon the meeting that we had to cancel the program that should have followed it in order to comfort and console and speak and the gospel to one another. So let me ask you again, what is the most engaging worship experience of your life? In some respects, I hesitate to ask the question. I hesitate to use the word engaging because I sometimes think that we place too much emphasis when we think of that word and attach it to human activity. That was an exciting music. Maybe that's what we mean by engaging or wasn't the preaching engaging this morning? But when I say about engaging and engaging God, I'm not talking about man's activity, but God's action amongst us is he's present here and with us. I'm talking about the reality and expectation that God will move among us as the musicians use their gifts, as we sing his praises, as the word of God is read and proclaimed, as we come before God as Helen, let us now in intercessory prayer, that we expect the presence of God to move mightily amongst us. So when you arrive here on Sunday morning, do you actually expect anything out of the ordinary to take place? Are you expecting to meet God? Are you anticipating that God will engage you and you will engage God in a, a powerful, life-transforming way that you will be impacted? Because Le Leviticus 9, it seems to me, is lived in the expectation that the Lord will appear. Isn't that what comes through as you read it, verse 4, for today the Lord will appear to you. 
we read that they obeyed the instructions, were to obey the instructions so that, verse 6, the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then in verse 23, we read that the glory of the Lord did in fact appear to them, manifest in their presence. God engaged his people in worship and they were overwhelmed by it. So Leviticus 9 has a great deal to teach us about worship. But I want to focus on just three um, things um, this morning. The first is this. Preparation is important for the engagement of God's presence. In the case of this worship described in um, Leviticus chapter 9, uh, preparation has been extensive. Okay, extensive. Uh, Remember, look at the first words, on the eighth day. That already alerts us to the fact that we've had seven days of something. We'll come to that in a moment. But go beyond that, what has happened? The people had erected the tabernacle according to God's instructions. That's extensive preparation. The people had set apart Aaron and his sons as priests according to God's commands. And uh, chapter 8, what we looked at last week, describes the consecration ceremony that was extensive and lasted for seven days. Seven days of preparation, lots of days of instruction before um, that. The building of the tabernacle, all preparation. And we arrive at the eighth um, day. So much preparation for this worship service. So let me ask you the most obvious question, blindingly obvious. How do you prepare for worship? Maybe we prepare for worship by staying up late on Saturday night, watching films, TV series into the late hours. Maybe we prepare by waking up on Sunday morning, checking some work emails, doing a bit of a laundry, and then follow that by arguing on the way to church about whose fault it is that we're late. And then we sit in the service, drifting off during the sermon because we're tired from a late night, zoning out during the songs because we're thinking about that email or whether the cycle of washing will be finished when we get home so we can put it into the tumble dryer. Being distracted during the prayers because I'm still mad from the argument. And then we get into our cars and we drive home and we think to ourselves, I didn't get much out of church this morning. And it doesn't occur to us that maybe we just weren't prepared to meet God. We weren't prepared for worship. Maybe we make more preparations for a birthday party that we're going to attend than we do for worship of the living God, public worship with our fellow believers. See, full engagement in public worship is so often preceded by engaging with the Lord in private worship. We're more ready to worship with others when we've worshipped alone. Uh, I visited a Christian couple um, this week from our congregation. Um, as they opened the door and I walked into the home, I heard music uh, playing. It was Christian and music. We naturally spoke about the things of the Lord immediately. We turned to prayer at various points. The atmosphere of the house was one of worship. 
And I was naturally drawn into it as a fellow and worshipper of the Lord. We recognize, don't we, that creatures, different creatures of various um, types, they have different environments in which they flourish more, basically, whether it's fish in the sea or the birds in the air or creatures on the ground. And as creatures, we were created to flourish in the environment of worship. Worship of the living God. Now, I can testify to the fact that God um, has spoken to me and used my private worship times in my life in wonderful ways. However, when I worship with the people of God, when I gather with the people of God, it's like the volume is turned up in my spirit to be attuned to the things of God. It's exciting. Those of us who support various teams, football teams, or wherever it might be, we, we enjoy watching the game at home in front of a, the TV. But it's another thing altogether to be in the stadium with all the other fans engaging on a completely different um, level. And how do we prepare for worship? Well, here's one thing, dear brothers and sisters. If it's not your habit, can I encourage you to spend some time in prayer before Sunday worship? Asking God to use this special time to do His work in us, to move powerfully amongst us. Could you arrive in good time so you can prepare your hearts and minds, maybe by sitting in your seat, two, three, four, five minutes, praying and for the service, or arrive on time and so that you're not a distraction to others as the leaders seeking to speak those opening words to draw our hearts to him and you're not shuffling in front of asking people to move. How do we prepare ourselves for worship? Why not join um, us, those of us who have that habit of speaking to the Lord and before our time of worship, asking him to bless us, to draw us closer to him and to draw close to us and to form in us the image of his son. We should ask him to help us to exalt him in worship and protect us from ourselves. Yes, protect, ask God to protect you from yourself. Our own hearts are the greatest hindrance to engaging God in worship. If we're going to engage with the Lord in a transforming way, we need to be guarded against a self-centered I. What are people thinking about me? What will they think if I raise my hands? What will they think if I get down on my knees um, in prayer? What does it matter? In some respects, and I hear this in the right way, in some respects, none of us are sitting there. We're all here and only God sits there. Our worship is for Him. Not for anyone else. So we don't have to have a self-centered eye saying, well, what are others thinking about me? You want to raise your hands? Raise your hands. You want to dance? Dance. You want to fall on your knees in prayer? Fall on your knees in prayer. You don't want to stand for a song because you're convicted of sin and you want to pray instead? Do that. 
as the Lord moves and prompts you by His Spirit and His Word. But we also need to be guarded against a critical eye. What was the preacher going on about this morning? What happened to the, to the singers? Did they not get any sleep? All these kind of things that uh, we think. But we also need to be guarded against a wandering eye. Oh, I really like the floral arrangement this morning. <laughs> are the curtains further back than they usually are? I mean, we laugh, but we can engage with everything and everyone around us and fail to engage with the one we came to worship. A self-centered eye, a critical eye, a wandering eye, and our eyes are off the Lord. But when we seek God in prayer before worship, when we prepare ourselves by our worship, private worship, it makes an amazing difference. So preparation for worship. Give 1020 a go. Give 1020 a go. Here's the second thing. Submission is important for the engagement of God's presence. So the worship experience described in Leviticus 9 was according to what God um, commanded. That was brought out uh, in our video over and over again. The basis of enjoying the presence of God was submission to his commands, to his words. It's in verse 7, it's in verse 10. Uh, it was done in the prescribed way, verse 16. You see, the very act of worship um, is submission to God's Word. Throughout the Bible, the way that people relate to God is in worship. The patriarchs worshipped. The Israelites left Egypt, went into the wilderness, and they worshipped. God told people, the people to build a tabernacle and a temple as places of worship. The prophets called people to write worship away from um, empty ritualistic worship. The psalmists over and over again exhort the people to worship. Listen to Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship was the pattern of the New Testament church. Jesus himself said, didn't he? Um, that he, the Father is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, we've prayed and Jesus told his followers to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, God's people offer worship of him continually. Revelation 4 says they're in heaven. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. The author of um, Hebrews, um, after he's um, unpacked um, lots of stuff in Leviticus about the sacrificial system and, and priesthood. And he says in chapter 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The expectation of our membership covenant is that if you're a member, you're gathering regularly with God's people for public worship. 
So we submit to God's word by the act of worship. The fact of gathering together as God's people as we've been commanded. But also by the way we worship. The way we worship should be in submission to God's word. That's there in verse 16. Everything is done and the people worship in the way that God had told them to worship. At the tabernacle that God had designed, with the sacrifices that God had commanded, led by the priests that God had chosen and consecrated. And we too must worship in the way that God tells us to worship in His Word. His Word tells us to sing praises, so we sing praises. His Word tells us to bow before Him, so in humility we confess our sins. His Word tells us to pray, so we pray. His Word tells us to express love for, one and for brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we do that. His Word tells us to, pre to read the Scriptures, to proclaim the Scriptures in our gatherings, so we do that. But often when anything happens in regards to worship wars, how a church should worship, that divides churches and often forms different groups of churches. Do you know what is at the centre of it? I'll call it like this. Which hymn book or song book we use? Worship wars, which hymn book we use? Rather than asking the question is, is our worship by the book? Forget about which hymn book or song book. Is it worship by the book? according to the Bible. You see, worship isn't mere attendance at a building at 10.30 or even 10.20. Worship isn't watching what the people up front do. Worship is submission to God's Word, demonstrating heartfelt praise of Him, fervent prayer to Him, honest confession before Him, expressions of love to those who belong to Him, and joyful obedience to Him. Submission. And the third focus is celebration is important in the engagement of God's presence. Let me read verses 23 and 24 again. Speaking of Moses and Aaron. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. You know, sometimes Christians debate vigorously, and as I said, denominations are formed on the basis of whether worship should be more celebrative or more meditative, more expressive or more subdued. Why can't it be both? Both were expressed when the Lord engages the people in Leviticus 9. You see, some people who like to sing passionately are not very comfortable with silent pauses. Some people who like set prayers are dismissive of spontaneity. But let me ask you this question. Is worship only what feels comfortable to you according to your own character. I've often thought to myself that most of us can raise 
a shout of excitement and lift our arms when our team or our player wins the match and lifts the trophy and we can do so in joy and jubilation. And most of us can close our mouths and bow our heads when the coffin passes as a mark of respect and reverence. You see, worship responds not to my character, but to the character of God. Worship is not an expression of my mood, but an experience of God's majesty and his might. You see, the service takes a lot of planning. You may not believe that. That's a shame. The songs and hymns are chosen with specific purposes in mind according to what's going to be read and proclaimed and where we are in the service. The musicians practice and organize the arrangements to enhance our praise. The leader decides what to say to lift our eyes to Jesus to help us to engage with each part of the service. They're not choosing their words as padding, but in order to enhance our praise, not to fill gaps, but to form growth in our hearts and minds as we connect. The preacher labors so that our minds can be instructed, our hearts captivated by truth. Planning and preparing for God's presence. But none of us can plan for what God will do. The Spirit moves where He chooses. In the final song, He may go to visit Carl with salvation. During the prayer time, he may convict Lucy about her bitterness. In the sermon, he's going to comfort Harry in his sadness. During the Lord's Supper, he's going to overwhelm Emma with joy. The Lord moves and does his work. It's a time of celebration because the Lord is with us, working amongst us, doing what he does for his people. I guess a lot of people in the church um, today, not just our church, but church at large, think that a great time of worship is defined by great music. And God commands us to use music to praise Him. But in the worship described in Leviticus 9, people produced no music, and yet God was present, and that was enough, and the people were overwhelmed. A lot of people think a great time of worship is defined by a powerful message from the preacher. But engaging and enjoying God in worship is about God's presence, not man's. Let me ask you this question. Can our mighty and majestic God be constrained because Bob hits a bum note on the bass? No. Can our powerful and purposeful God be restrained because Scott seems a bit stuttery in his speech? No. Does it exalt God when we want to attend worship more because of who is in the pulpit and on the piano than who we've come to praise? No. And so it begs us with the question, and who are we actually turning up for? See, we don't turn up to experience what people are going to do, but to engage with the Lord and watch what He does. See, our Sunday worship is vitally important 
in our experience of God's presence amongst us. It's hard, isn't it, as a Christian, to live by faith in God who we cannot see, whose voice we cannot hear, whose touch we cannot feel. But in worship, the veil is drawn back and faith sees and faith hears and faith feels the Lord in a very real, tangible way. You see, that's my experience, and I'm sure it's your experience true, and that's why I love to gather here Sunday morning and evening, because I want to know and love and experience the Lord in a deeper and fuller way that enriches my worship life. And what a witness to others such worship would be. An outsider who can look over a congregation and, and say, the Lord must be present there. They must really believe they're in the presence of God. They're acting like it, speaking like it, singing like it, praying like it. They'll say, look, no one could behave as these people do were they not actually in the presence of the living God? What can explain their conduct? Preparation for worship. Submission in worship. Celebration at worship. All so that we, the people of God, might engage and enjoy our beautiful God. Let us pray. Lord, we have gathered this morning because we love you. We gather this morning because we know that there is no one in the whole world who we'd rather be with. We know that there's no greater thing for us to do than to come and to offer up our praises to you and to glory in you, our Redeemer. And we know, Lord, as we do that, that we engage with you and you with us in a way that enriches our lives, in a way that fills our heart with joy that brings security and stability to the soul, that alleviates our burdens as they're cast upon you, comforts a troubled spirit as you draw near by your word and spirit. Lord, may our hearts be captivated more and more by your beauty and majesty. May we be eager and to gather on Sundays because we know not only that it's the right thing to do, but actually it's the best, most profitable and fruitful thing that we can do. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you will take what has been spoken and this morning what we've read in Leviticus 9 and the thoughts and that we've been thinking about. 
and that you will use them, Lord, to renew our minds, to shape our hearts, and to cause us to have that deeper and fuller worship of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.